We're going to go today to the book of John, chapter 6. We've, we wrapped up chapter 5 last week, and so we're ready to move in um, and see what, what takes place here in John chapter 6. John 6 is a very important chapter when it comes to the life of Jesus. Um, because as you'll see at the beginning of John chapter 6, there are many, there are thousands who are flocking to Jesus, who are coming to hear him speak and, and to, to see the things that he is doing. And you're going to get to the end of John, okay? So this is one of those things, this is like the spoiler about John chapter 6, okay? You're going to get to the end of John chapter 6, and there are going to be many who walk away from Jesus when they begin to understand who he is and why he came. But there's also some very important things that are said by those 12 disciples who follow him, that, that have been called by him as we've seen them throughout this book. And so in John chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 today, and we see the next miracle, the next sign that John records confirming that Jesus is the Christ and that there is life in Jesus, the Son of God. And what you see in these 15 verses, you see this meal, this miraculous meal, probably an account that you are familiar with, if if you're familiar with the life of Jesus. Actually, this account, this miracle, this sign is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, that's one that that most of the material in John isn't found in the other in the other Gospels, you actually find this in all of them. And so throughout the, the, the passage today and next week, uh, we'll reference some of these things because actually what happens after this is also recorded in a couple of those Gospels. I ask that you would follow along as we read these first 15 verses in John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them, among, distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Father, we are so privileged to come now and take just a few minutes of our day and look at your word together. What a wonderful thing it is to hold the word of God in our hands. And Lord, may we never be satisfied to just hold the word of God in our hands. May we seek your Holy Spirit to apply it to our hearts. 
And we ask that over the next few minutes, you would meet with us. You would show us who you are. You would show us what you have done. And you would convict our hearts of sin. You would show us the way you have called us to serve you. And we pray that today we would honor and glorify you in all that's said and done. And may we walk out of this place different than we've come in today because we have heard your truth proclaimed and you have applied it to our hearts and done a wondrous work. your name we pray. Amen. America has certainly enjoyed over the years her share of heroes. And if you think back to the early years of American history, some of you I'm going to call back into that U.S. history class you took many years ago, you would remember some of these people. Men such as George Washington or Patrick Henry or James Madison and more fought for this country. They shaped this nation and throughout history have been revered. And you need not look very far in our country to find remembrances of these men. You can find cities, townships, buildings, roads, and more that bear the names of these men and women from American history. Now, imagine, if you will, if you combined the political and sometimes physical victories that these men won with the leading of a, of a religion or a religious movement. What if you could take the leader of a nation and the founder of a religion and you could roll all of that into one person? And if you did this, you would make strides towards, but, but still not equal, how the Jews felt about Moses. And this understanding of how the Jews felt about Moses is is critical to this passage that we're going to see here in John chapter 6 today. Moses was a man used in incredible ways by God. Through him, God freed his people from Egypt, humbling Egypt in the process. He then led the people to the promised land, and along the way, initiated the covenant of the law between God and his people. And with God's empowerment, Moses provided for the people of Israel in incredible, miraculous ways. And though Moses did not enter the promised land, he is the greatest figure in Israel's history of entering Canaan. And in the account before us today, Jesus' display of power, this this sign, this confirming work that he does, showing that he is the Messiah, resonates with those Jews who were there who feel extremely nationalistic, who long for freedom from the Roman Empire, and who seek self-satisfaction. However, though they would seek a king on their own terms, we will see that Jesus is on a far greater mission That must be fulfilled. And what you see in this passage is that Jesus' power proves he is the promised prophet greater than Moses who will deliver men from sin. As we've said before, John records in this passage, in his his book, uh, these signs. And he uses that word sign very specifically. That is a sign of authenticity, is a mark that something is authentic. And that's what Jesus does when he performs these signs. He is proving, I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the incarnate Word. I am the one come to deliver men from sin. And so here in in John chapter 6, we pick up in verses 1 through 4. 
And you get the picture of where Jesus is and, and what's going on around him. We actually, what we have here is we have a gathered crowd. But first, notice the location in John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. We see the gathered crowd here around Jesus, and entering John chapter 6, there's a time gap that takes place here. The events of this chapter do not take place immediately following Jesus' actions and words in John chapter 5. Instead, they take place at least six months after John chapter 5. We know this because of what we read in verse 4. In verse 4, you read that there's a specific feast that takes place. It's the feast of Passover. Jesus also has relocated. He's now back, not in Jerusalem as he was in John chapter 5, but in the northern area of Israel near the Sea of Galilee. Now, the, the Sea of Galilee is something that's seen over and over again throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, it's, it's, we read the name of it was called Kinnereth. That, that, that word, Kinnereth, means liar, and it probably is, is given, liar being the instrument, not someone who doesn't tell the truth. Um, and it's probably given that name because of the shape, the rough shape that the lake had. Now, by the time that John wrote his gospel, not only was it known as the Sea of Galilee, but we see here he refers to it as the Sea of Tiberias. And he got that name because the ruler, Herod Antipas, had founded a city on the western shore, and he named the city Tiberias. And he named it Tiberias because the Roman emperor, his name was Tiberius. And it is on the eastern shore of this well-known body of water that Jesus and his disciples gather. Matthew relates to us in his gospel that they gathered in this place after they received the news of John the Baptist's death. Mark tells us the disciples had also just returned from a preaching mission and that Jesus himself had been involved in a physically exhausting ministry while they were away. And in verse 3 of John chapter 6, we learn that Jesus moves up into a mountain to sit with his disciples. This is probably in an area in Israel which is commonly referred to today as the Golan Heights. It doesn't necessarily mean a high mountain, but it could also mean a hill country or a high place. And there he sits with his disciples intending to be alone with them. But as they pulled away to the eastern side, you begin to see this crowd that that follows them because Jesus' popularity has grown uh, considerably as his ministry has increased in the land of Israel. And now with the Passover approaching, understand that, that there are Jewish pilgrims who don't live in the land of Israel, but they're coming back to Israel on their way to Jerusalem because all of them were expected to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so, as they're on their way back to Jerusalem to celebrate, A great multitude follows Jesus and his disciples here. But you note here why they came. It says in verse 2, A great multitude followed him because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. The motivations of this multitude are not that of genuine love 
or genuine faith or devotion to Jesus. They still continue to follow Jesus because he seems to be the kind of leader, the kind of Messiah that they want in life. We see here that they have seen his signs that he has performed regularly on the sick. Jesus is is healing people on a regular basis here in the land of Israel. During Jesus' earthly ministry, disease and sickness are at an all-time low in the nation of Israel because Jesus is consistently claiming victory over those things. And naturally, that piques the curiosity and the interest of other people. That, that here's this guy who is, who is claiming victory over these things. He's, he's teaching people as, as people have never taught before. He's providing for people. But what they see in him is the answer to physical trouble and the meeting of physical needs. To them, this is exactly what they want in a leader. They want one who can eliminate all of life's troubles and problems. And then understand that this is a crowd full of very nationalistic feelings. If you know anything about the Old Testament, and you think back to the Passover and what that, when that first took place, that first took place on the night of the 10th plague in the land of Egypt, when God killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, except for those who had obeyed what he had said and painted the, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And so the Passover was a time of remembrance, an incredible celebration for the people of Israel every year because it was at this time that the people were reminded of the victory that God had won over the nation of Egypt, freeing his people from their enslavement to the land of Egypt. And so everything that goes on in the book of Exodus all the way up through the book of Deuteronomy, all of these things are going to come back to their minds at the time of the Passover. How God rained manna from heaven and brought quail for them to eat. How God brought water from the rock. How God gave them victory over their enemies. How the ten plagues, all the way back before they were freed, all the ten plagues that God had done to bring a nation to its knees, all the way up to as they crossed the Red Sea. God opened the Red Sea, and then he closed it back over the Egyptians who tried to follow them. And, And so at that time of year, all of these things are going on in their hearts and their minds. It really isn't unlike perhaps the things that you feel on the 4th of July. You know, that's a big holiday here in our nation. Here in Beaverton, you know, we enjoy the parade and all those things. And, and you, you around the 4th of July may get this feeling of, of, of patriotism. And yeah, this is great. And I want to watch people eat hot dogs till they puke on ESPN. And, you know, all these things that make us Americans or whatever, right? Um, those feelings of pride... And that thing that you feel on the 4th of July, this is what the Jews felt when, when the Passover came, and more so, because of all the things that God had done for them, and all the promises that God had made them. And it's going to have an effect later on in this account on the actions of the crowd. And so as they gather, Jesus observes their needs and takes the opportunity to not only care for the people but also to confirm his deity once again. And then also in the meantime, he's going to teach his disciples about their need to continue to exercise faith in him. In verses 5 through 9, you see this test of faith. Look at this incredible need that comes up. 
Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, said to, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus spent time with those 12 disciples there on the mountain, but he also ministered to those who came that day. Matthew 14, 14 records for us, and Jesus, when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. On that mountain that day, on that hillside there in that area, Jesus met their physical needs as was so often the case. And don't, don't be mistaken, Jesus knew the hearts of those who were gathered there that day. He knew those who had come to not truly exercise saving faith in himself. He knew that most of them longed for a Messiah who would only fit their ideals and fill their lives with ease and happiness. Yet he can still continue to express compassion on them that day. Because they were still his personal creation. Do you understand that God loves you with a love that is on beyond comprehension? Because though we have nothing in and of ourselves that makes us lovable, because we have sin, God still pours his compassion out on us. It's been, it's been asked many times in theological discussions, and I've had this discussion with many a people as a pastor, that if, if, if we were going to sin anyway, why would God even create us? Because God loves you with a love that you and I can understand. It is a boundless love. And Jesus shows this compassion on these people here that have come as he continues to heal those who need him. His goodness is displayed in lives that day and every day. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus just left them where they were. He did continue then to seek to draw them to himself. In Luke chapter 9, Luke's account of this records in verse 11, that when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them, and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and healed those who had need of healing. Jesus spoke to those who were there that day, the truths of the kingdom of God. He taught them how one could enter and live in God's eternal kingdom. Jesus is the only way into the kingdom of God. And he has now, today, sent the Holy Spirit to indwell all believers. We can live for the kingdom of God every day by the Holy Spirit's help to follow the example that Jesus has left for us. The crowd listened to Jesus and what he said. They experienced the incredible miracles. But eventually, the day wore on. The Synoptic Gospels record for us that it was evening time when the disciples approached Jesus with the incredible need before them. Luke 9, verse 12 says, When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. The crowd that was gathered there had experienced the incredible healings and the incredible teachings of Jesus, and they had heard those things which would feed their souls, but they still needed physical sustenance for their bodies. And since they were in such a deserted area, the, 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 the disciples' approach is the one that to us as human beings makes sense, right? We're out here in the middle of nowhere, 
with all of these people, okay, it's time to tell everybody to pack up and go home. It's tell them to go and to, to go find places to, to be fed, to stay. Again, all of these pilgrims are on their way to Jerusalem. They need to find something to take care of themselves. And this is when Jesus presents this test of faith to his disciples. And he, we see the, the command that he gave to Philip as one in, in, in human understanding is impossible. Jesus told Philip, or Jesus asked Philip in, in verse, uh, verse 5, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Jesus looks to Philip and asks him what was seen to merely be a logistical question. Where do they need to go in order to buy bread for everyone to eat that evening? Now, many have speculated over the years. Why did Jesus ask Philip this question? Maybe it was because he was some type of administrator for the 12 who handled these sorts of situations. While others observe that the closest town is the town of Bethsaida, and which is, that is the town where Philip is from, so he's the one who's most well acquainted with the area. Now, of the speculations you can make, that one is perhaps the simplest and most straightforward. But it's really not a question that you have to settle in order to understand the text, nor is it relevant to the details of the text. But what is most important here is is to understand that Jesus interacted personally with each of these men. And he knew them better than they knew themselves. He cared for each one of them, seeking to grow them in himself. And here, he is seeking the growth of Philip and the others' faith in himself as the Son of God. He addresses then this question specifically to to, to Philip. And we see that from the outset, this was a test of Philip's faith in Jesus. In verse 6, it says, But he said, This he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew that the answer, that the answer, what the answer was to the problem that was before them. He already knew what he was going to do in this passage to take care of the people's need. Because he is the omniscient, omnipotent God. But what God is doing in Philip's life is what he does in the lives of all who are true disciples of himself. He was testing Philip's faith in order to refine and strengthen that faith in himself. He gives Philip here an opportunity to express what Philip should begin to understand by what he's observed about what Jesus has done. And think about just the things that, that John has recorded. He's only recorded a few, but, but there are many of these miracles that Jesus has done, and Philip has, has watched these things happen. So Jesus is, is drawing Philip into this relationship with him closer and closer to express faith and trust in who Jesus is and what he can do. He was testing and refining that faith. Has Philip taken to heart the power of God exhibited by Jesus? Does he trust him and recognize what he can do? And if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, God does the same in your life as well. Trials and tests befall us in our lives, not because God wishes to tempt us to sin, but so that he may refine our trust in him. And even after salvation, you will find there are times in your life where it is difficult to continue to trust God. If you've walked with God for any length of time, I'm sure you've experienced this. 
Sometimes that distrust of God will lead us down dark paths of sin and cause us to live at odds with God. And and while it will not rob a true Christian of his eternal security, it will definitely impact his everyday life as he is not in step with the Lord. Other times, God will bring or allow things into our lives in order to show us our need for complete dependence on and submission to him. How many times when we're faced with a trial in our lives that we try every human answer we can think of in a situation before we just go, well, I guess I'll pray about it now. Right? And all of a sudden, God begins to work. And you think, I should have done this a long time ago. That's why God brings the trial into our lives. To teach us to depend on him more. We live in a broken, fallen world. We are broken, sinful people. We need a complete and total trust in God that we may see his work done in our hearts and lives. And when God teaches us something in one trial or test, may we carry that on to the next one that we face. However, if in these times of trying and testing we grow bitter, angry, and resentful, and we take responses like that, my friend, you will carry that response with you into the next trial as well. The church in general, the body of Christ, is unfortunately littered with very bitter Christians who refused to trust God and instead blamed him for their difficult lives. And they say things like, well, God, you made this mess, so you've got to do something with it. My friend, that is nothing but a bitter heart and soul. That is an awful choice to make. And you know what it means? It means you'll never truly live at peace with God. Here, Jesus tests Philip with a very physical problem in order to show Philip there is no problem that we face that is a match for my power. Philip expects these people, or sorry, Jesus expects these people to be fed. So how must it happen? Well, Philip looked around and he saw the magnitude of the situation and he was overwhelmed. Um, my dad is a math teacher. My brother it was, is a math in the field of math and, and taught math. And so you can see Philip here, he looks around and does math, right? Look what he says. He says, Philip answered, him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may have a little. He expresses to Jesus that if we had 200 denarii on us and we bought that much bread, it's still not going to be enough for everybody to get just a little bit, let alone enough to make them satisfied. Now understand the finances of the situation here. One denarii is a day's labor's wage. So these, these guys would often get paid at the end of the day. They did their work. They would receive a denarii. So, or a denarius. So 200 denarii is approximately eight months' wages worth of food. Jesus and his disciples in their ministry experienced generosity from others who supported them and gave to their ministry. But it is highly doubtful they had 200 denarii on them at that moment. 
And even if they did, as has already been stated, that wouldn't be enough. So what Philip is, is doing is he's expressing to Jesus, this is an impossible thing. This is an overwhelming thing you want us to do. Where are we going to buy enough bread? There's not enough bread around here to buy. If we went out and bought it, it wouldn't be enough. And as Philip answers Jesus, you see another disciple enters the scene who has found something that is also insufficient. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Andrew has located a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. Now, contextually, let's understand something here. When, when you have before you, in our modern English, the word loaves, you, you and I have a different understanding of what that means. Um, if I said, would you go down the store, or my wife said to me, would you go down the store and get five loaves of bread, I'm going to come home with big packs of bread. That's not what it's talking about here. What it's meant by, here, by this is it's a small, it's almost like a cake. It's a flat, like a pancake. I guess, I, I love, one author said it this way, the best thing we could compare it to is like a biscuit, Okay. Some of you have been to my house and had southern biscuits, okay? Those are good things, okay? Probably wasn't the same, all right? Um, but that's the size comparison, okay? So you're talking about a little bitty cake of bread. And these fish very likely were pickled fish. They would either be used to, to eat with the bread or maybe even as a spread that you would put on the bread. So understand that what we're talking about here is, is in the grand scheme of things, a very insignificant amount of food. I mean, what Andrew said is an accurate statement. What are these among so many? It's, it's nothing. Andrew has located meager rations indeed. What you see in the life of Andrew is he is one who lives again and again to bring people to Jesus and seek to, to solve problems when he can, but his faith often failed as well. And here, Both of these men see before them an impossible task. They have not the resources available to make the things happen that Jesus has asked them to. And what is true in their lives is true in ours. God often must bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can see his incredible work. Because you and I, we're full of it. Right? We're full of ourselves. We, we think that we can do anything. Hey, we can make this happen. And how many times does God have to bring us to the very end of who we are so that we can see him work? Because God uses broken people. And God does amazing things with not very much. And that's exactly what he does here. Jesus brings these men, Philip specifically, to the end of, of his answer. And he shows them the trust that they should have exhibited himself as he once again confirms his power, deity, and mission and the total provision that he undertakes. In verse 10, then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. We see the fulfilling meal that Jesus is about to provide. He prepares to meet that need before them as he had planned. He calls for the disciples to have everyone sit down. And, and though their faith may have struggled, they didn't lack in obedience to Jesus. We see John's 
personal recollections of that day. I mean, even just this idea that there was much grass there, it's an eyewitness account. Hey, I was there. I remember. We looked around, and there was grass. And that makes sense. I mean, it was March or April when this occurred. And now we learn what an incredible crowd that has gathered. John states here that there were 5,000 men there. Luke tells us that they sat them in groups of 50. And Matthew tells us there were also women and children that were part of the group. So taking all of that into account, it is not unreasonable to figure the number of people that were there that day was easily 15,000, if not 20,000 people. No wonder the disciples were so overwhelmed at the expectation of providing for them. Jesus then does an amazing thing. Look, look what, is, what John records. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Jesus gave thanks to God the Father and began to provide for all of those who were there. And Notice what he does. He does not create this mountain of food that appears. He does not make it rain down from heaven like the manna for the Israelites. But instead, he continues to distribute from the original five loaves and two fish to the disciples and the disciples to the people there. That must have been an incredible sight to behold. If you had any inkling of what Jesus started with, what an incredible thing. He just keeps coming. Jesus, the creator is creating before their very eyes. And he gave to them everything they needed. Philip said, if we had 200 days labor worth of bread, it wouldn't be enough to give everybody a taste. What did Jesus do with those five little loaves and two fish? It says at the end of verse 11, as much, he gave them as much as they wanted. It wasn't just here, take a bite and pass it. How much do you want? They would go on, all of these people would go on to the next part of their lives with the energy needed to do so because of Jesus' provision. God's provision is always exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. God does not leave us high and dry. He does not leave us without that which we need in him. And as God worked through Moses to provide for his people throughout the Exodus, Jesus is the greater fulfillment, creating here for these people exactly what they needed. And not only is it what they needed, it is more than enough. In verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up. And filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. God's abundant, overflowing provision is not an excuse for waste. Jesus sends his disciples out into the crowd to gather up the leftovers. Inevitably, there were those who, as your mom might have said growing up, whose eyes were bigger than their stomachs, right? And they had some left over. So the disciples gathered up what was left, and it was far more than the original five loaves and two fishes they started with. Here again, um, there's some speculation that's made about, well, you know, they took up 12 baskets. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you what it means. There were 12 disciples, and they all had a basket. And they all went around with a basket, and they filled these baskets up with what was left over. 
This was further proof to them that Jesus was more than enough. Jesus' provision is not just enough to get you by. It's more than you need. Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Paul is talking about Jesus in this verse. Jesus is always enough. He is enough for salvation from sin. He is enough for whatever trial you face. He is enough for the strength you need. And he provided not only for that day, but for the subsequent meals that would come. And he is more than adequate to meet all man's needs, physical and spiritual. The physical work of provision that Jesus did that day for these people remind us that he is everything we need spiritually. Unfortunately, not everyone understood it the way it was intended. We see lastly in the passage the flawed reaction of the people. First, you see the prophecy that has been fulfilled. In verse 14, then when those Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Again, remember, the Passover is near. The feelings of of nationalistic pride are running high. Now couple that with, with what they have just, these people have just experienced. They have just experienced a miraculous provision of food, not entirely unlike what God did for his people after they left Egypt after the first Passover. Remember, all of these people have heard all the stories. They They have heard the scriptures of how God sent manna from heaven. And now here they are sitting near the Passover, and they just received a miraculous provision of of food. Undoubtedly, the crowd was reminded of these things and of Moses, whom they greatly revered. And it is at this moment a realization hits that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. Now, I want you to go back here to verse 14 and notice what they say. They say here that this truly, this is truly, what are the next two words? The prophet. That is important. This is not a prophet. This is the prophet, it has a definite article. Why? Because it's referring to what, what was said in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. There was prophesied that there would come one who was a prophet like Moses. So when the Israelites are saying, what these people are saying, when they say this is the prophet, this is who they're talking about. This is the prophet like Moses. And you know what? They were not wrong. He was the one who had come to fulfill these things. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. These men observed and recognized this confirming sign. 
that Jesus could not do what he had just done unless he was God, unless he was exactly who he said he was. But though they recognized who Jesus was, they drew wrong conclusions about what that actually meant. And you see that in verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. What these people have are are preconceived notions about the Messiah. Israel loved the idea of the Messiah as long as he came on their terms. They loved, let's be honest, okay, when, they look at, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, they loved the free food and the free health care they received from Jesus. They loved the idea of throwing off the Roman yoke of bondage. Hey, as Moses freed Israel from Egypt, so is he going to free us from the Roman oppressors who have taken over our nation. And just as Moses had delivered their ancestors in their minds, they would be delivered and now they'll never lack for anything. Because, hey, look, he can provide food when we need it. He can get rid of all potential illnesses. He can claim victory for Israel once and for all. And in looking at Jesus with such selfish ambitions, the people missed the necessity of the Savior. Because Jesus will reign, but the cross had to precede the crown. The people did not need a deliverer from Rome. They needed a deliverer from sin. And that is what Jesus came to do. He came to be the Savior of men. Jesus does not come to us on our terms. We must approach him on his. Jesus calls for sinners to mourn over sin and to humbly place their faith in him and acknowledge him as personal Lord and Savior, obeying him with their lives. And to those who come to him in faith, he gives life eternal, new life in himself, incomparable joy, and an incredible comfort of his presence. And what Jesus saw in the crowd that day was not faith in himself, It was a desire for a puppet king. And you say, well, why do you say that? Because what Jesus perceived is if he didn't come willingly, what were they going to do? They're basically going to kidnap him and make him do what they want him to do. And Jesus then departs from them. He had not come to be crowned king. Now, that doesn't mean that he isn't the king. But his mission at this time was to come as the Lamb of God. And if he had not acquiesced to the crowd's desires, we read they would have taken him by force in their march to the holy city for Passover and would have certainly set him up as some physical deliverer. And one day, Jesus will return to reign. But right now, you can enter his kingdom. You can be part of his eternal reign and enjoy his presence forever. But to do so, you must recognize him as your Lord and Savior only then can you know him fully? Jesus' power proves he is the promised prophet greater than Moses who will deliver men from sin. Jesus' authenticating miracles reveal his deity and teach us about our need for complete trust in him. 
And as you read the passages of John, you have to ask this question over and over again. Have you entered into a relationship with him? Have you fully trusted in him for your salvation from sin? He is the only hope for eternity. All will bow before him one day. Those who shun his salvation now will bow before him in defeat and condemnation of them. In Jesus, we have everything we need for salvation, for sanctification, for all of life. And perhaps you have found yourself walking through an incredible time of trying and testing in your life. And if you do not know Jesus, there is no way you can endure this on, this on your own and be better for it. You need the Savior. And if you are a child of God, what is it you trust in more than him in times like this? We must be honest. It is easier to trust God in what we consider easier times. Right? But we need the trials of life to refine our trust and faith that we may enjoy a greater relationship with God. And folks, I would argue that if we only trust God in the easy times of life, we're not really trusting God. The storms of our life reveal where our trust is. When faced with trials, your faith and your trust can be increased if you will see above the hardship struggle, and need the sufficiency of your God. God wants you to trust him in all things, and the more we learn to trust him, the greater our walk with him can be. You have to remember, you can't follow Jesus on your own terms. You can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have liberty without the liberator. And you can't enjoy his blessings without obeying him. The only way to come to Jesus is the only way to live in Jesus. On his terms and following him, no strings attached. And when you do that, you can enjoy a wonderful, victorious Christian life. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us to be here in your house. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the power it has to change our lives. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who applies these things to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who came as the Lamb of God, given to take away the sins of the world. And Lord, as we observe your power in this passage before us today, we ask that you would work in our hearts, that you would show us your might, your strength, You would give us the perspective we need to serve you. Lord, for one who hears the message today, who has wrestled with eternity, perhaps they have said no to you many times, perhaps they have said maybe to you, Lord, may today be the day of salvation. May they see that you are all they need. Lord, for Christians who are here today, who hear these things, and have tried to have the kingdom without the king, have tried to enjoy your blessings without obedience. May you convict them of sin. You show them their need of full and complete submission to you. 
And may you show them the joy that you will give in their lives if they will follow you. And Lord, we ask, as we prepare to go from this place in a few minutes, you would continue to work in our hearts, that you would do a mighty thing in our lives, that you would keep the impact of these things going in our hearts and lives, that we may further live for your honor and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.